Good morning. Uh, we've uh, had a number of fun things going on here at Bay Marin. Last week we had our annual day camp, also known as Vacation Bible School, and I had the privilege of getting to teach one of the classes, and so I had four different groups of kids coming in and out of my classroom uh, every morning last week, and it was a load of fun having all these kids at Bay Marin running around, screaming, having a good time. Uh, also, this weekend, right now, our youth are all uh, rafting on a river, so keep them in your prayers. They'll get back this evening sometime. And then uh, one other thing I'd uh, love for you all to be praying for is Phil and Minnie Steiner uh, are uh, in Mexico right now with their nonprofit, Be to Live, with, I think, 52 uh, students from Marin, um, and they get back tonight as well, and so we'll get to hear from them um, if not next Sunday, the Sunday after, about their trip and how that went. Uh, we have been going through the book of 1 Samuel, and I want to invite you to turn there this morning, 1 Samuel chapter 8. There's Bibles in the, under the chairs in front of you if you don't have a Bible with you. And um, we're going to jump into 1 Samuel 8 this morning, uh, so I'm going to catch you up to where we've been. We've uh, been exploring the story of this young boy, Samuel, who was called by God not only to be a priest, uh, he, he grew up in the tabernacle. He was a priest in training, if you will. But uh, God spoke to Samuel, which reveals to us that Samuel is not only a priest, but Samuel is also a prophet. He is one who speaks God's words to God's people on behalf of God. And when we enter into 1 Samuel 4, 1 Samuel 4, uh, 4, 5, and 6, interestingly, uh, Samuel is notably absent from those chapters. And when we enter into 1 Samuel 4, we see that Israel goes to war with the Philistines. Now, the Philistines were a neighboring country, uh, and th there's this constant tension between Israel and the Philistines throughout much of the Old Testament scriptures. And, and so the Philistines go to war uh, with Israel, and uh, Israel doesn't fare too well. And so Israel's a little confused. Why, uh, why isn't God with us? Oh, I know what we can do. We'll take the Ark of the Covenant with us, and then God will be with us, and we can defeat the Philistines. Now, here's an artist's rendition of what the Ark of the Covenant looked like. And uh, within the Ark of the Covenant were the Ten Commandments. And uh, the Israelites believed that God's very presence was in this box. And so if they took the Ark with them out to fight against the Philistines, surely God would be with them and they would prevail against the Philistines. Well, uh, God wasn't too pleased with this action of the Philistine, uh, of the Israelites to take the ark with them to fight against the Philistines. And uh, the, Phil, uh, the Philistines defeated Israel in this battle. Not only did they defeat Israel, but they took the ark of the covenant with them. And Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's sons, we, uh, we were learning about Eli and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and how Hophni and Phinehas were living a life far from God and abusing power and taking advantage of the people. Hophni and Phinehas died in that battle. And someone ran back to Eli to tell him, your sons have died and the ark has been stolen by the Philistines. 
and Eli fell off his stool and broke his neck, and he too died on the same day. His sons died, and there's this declaration, the glory of the Lord has departed from Israel. Uh, I have the map, the next slide. So this is a map, Israel to the north. Uh, you see the Philistines there to the southwest. Now, the Philistines took the Ark of the Covenant to Ashdod. In Ashdod was the temple to the Philistine god, Dagon. And so they took the Ark into the temple of Dagon in 1 Samuel chapter 5, and they placed the Ark of the Covenant in front of their god, Dagon. This would uh, be something you would do if you defeated another country. You would show that their god is lesser than your god. Their god is submissive to your god. And so they were actively showing, we have the Israelites' god, and we're putting it in the temple of our god. And they set it in the temple, and that night they left, and the next morning they walked in, and you know what they found? They found Dagon face down in front of of the Ark of the Covenant. Huh. That's kind of strange. So they set their God back up and said, okay, everything's good and jolly. And that night they left, and the next morning they came back into their temple, and you know what they found? Dagon on his face before the Ark of the Covenant. But this time, his face was no longer attached to his body. His head and his arms had broken off. <laughs> Not only this, but the people of Ashdod began to get sick. And they had boils on their arms, on their bodies, and they said, this isn't good. Something is really wrong with this picture. Uh, we need to get rid of the Ark. And, and so, like any friendly neighbor, they decided to send it to Gath. Uh, Keep the slide there, please, back. They decided to send it to Gath. And so they send the Ark of the Covenant to fellow Philistines. Here, why, why don't you take this prized possession we stole from the Israelites? And Gath is like, okay, we'll take the Ark. And the same thing happened there. People started to get sick. They started to get boils. This is bad. People started dying. This is bad. We don't want the Ark of the Covenant. So they did what any good neighbor would do, and they sent it north to their buddies in Ekron. Ekron had heard about what happened in Ashdod and what had heard in Gath, happened in Gath, and they come out and they meet the people from Gath bringing the Ark to Ekron, and they said, uh uh, not here. You're not bringing the Ark here. We know what you're up to. Not going to happen. And so the people of Ekron end up sending the ark back to Israel. And they loaded up some cattle on a wagon without even any humans. And they just say, Ch -ch -ch, go. And off they go. And they head back to Israel. And when the people of Israel see the ark of God returning, they rejoice. And they make a decision. The ark of God is returning. We will return to the Lord. Re-enter Samuel. In 1 Samuel chapter 7, Samuel says to the people, okay, you want to return to the Lord? You need to return to the Lord with your whole heart. You have been engaging in Baal worship. You have been engaging in erecting what were called Asherah poles. You have been engaging in pagan worship. It 
will not be tolerated. You must return to the Lord with your whole heart. And the people say, we'll do it. They quit Baal worship. They tore down the Asherah poles and they said, we will return to the Lord with our whole heart. And so we pick up in 1 Samuel chapter 8. It says, when Samuel grew old. And so there are a number of years that we're not told about, some history that we're not aware of that transpired between 1 Samuel 7 and 1 Samuel 8. Uh, we're led to believe that uh, the people of Israel had lived uh, committed to God, committed to the God of Israel, Yahweh, during these years. And in 1 Samuel chapter 8, uh, Samuel has become old. And so because he's old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. They began doing things that had been explicitly taught not to do by leaders in the law. If I can have the next slide. In Exodus 18... The Israelites are told to select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. And here Samuel's sons have gone after dishonest gain. Next slide. Do not deny justice to your poor people in their lawsuits. Do not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds those who see and twists the words of the innocent. Do not oppress a foreigner. You yourselves know how it feels to be foreigners because you were foreigners in Egypt. And so the very things that God had told the people not to do are the very things that Samuel's sons are not doing. How quickly people who enter into positions of power begin to abuse power. Samuel was faithful to God. Samuel lived his life fully dedicated to the Lord, and yet his sons did not follow in his ways. Verse 4, So the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, You are old. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. Appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. They want to be like everybody else. They see what their neighbor has, and they say, I want that. Now, I know this is thousands of years ago. I know no one wrestles with that today. No one looks at their neighbor and says, I want what they have. This is obviously long ago. Israel sees their neighbor has a king, and they want a king. They want to be like everyone else. Now, when God brought the Hebrew people out of Israel, out of slavery, he said to them, you are different. 
I will be your king, and you will be my people, and you will be a kingdom of priests. God had promised them that he would be their king, and yet the Hebrew people here realize that Samuel's getting old, his sons aren't following in his ways, and so what happens? They get afraid. And the fear of not feeling secure drives them to want a human king who will make them feel secure. We all wrestle with the fear of security, personal security, communal security, national security. And here are the people saying, we want to feel secure. Give us a king like everyone else has a king. God had set them apart. He said, you're to be a light to the Gentiles. You're to look different. And they say, we don't like looking different anymore. We want a king just like everyone else. Verse 6, when they said this, when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Uh, God surprisingly acquiesces quite easily here. Uh, It seems that God knows they've made up their mind. They have determined they want a king, so Samuel, listen to them. But before you give them a king, let them know what that king will ask of them. Let them know what that king will require of them. Make sure they go into this fully aware of what will occur if they reject me as their king and want a human king. You see, sometimes God gives us what we want, even when it's not God's best for us. Sometimes God gives us what we want even when it's a foolish choice because God lets us choose. He doesn't force us to choose him. He allows us to choose to reject him. We can choose the way of God or we can choose to be like everyone else. We can choose the security God promises us an eternal security, or we can choose to trust in our own security, the things that make us feel secure. God says, Samuel, listen to them. If it's a king they want, give them a king, but warn them. Warn them to count the cost of what that king will ask of them, because there's a cost There's a cost to following the way of God, and there's a cost, I would argue, a much deeper and more destructive cost to wanting what everyone else has. And so Samuel warns them. Verse 10, 
Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, This is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Notice what the king will do. He'll take your sons. He'll take your daughters. He'll take the best of your fields. He'll take your grain and your vintage. He'll take your servants and cattle. He'll take your flocks, and you will become his slaves. Uh, What were the Israelites in Egypt? Slaves. There was a king there, a pharaoh, and he made them all slaves. And God freed them from slavery, liberated them, invited them into a way of life with him as their king. And they said, not good enough. We want a human king. And God says, if you choose to have a human king over you again, it will return you to slavery. You will once again be enslaved. And that king will take everything from you. Is that what you really want? In the book of Luke... Jesus is speaking and he's talking about the cost. The cost of following him. And he uses a story about a king. He starts by saying, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Jesus is saying that there's a way of giving up everything you have for me and my sake. Or there's another way. But that way, it will be taken from you. And you will choose that way, where you will give up, ultimately, your very soul for the sake of wanting to be like everyone else. There's a way of living that Jesus invites us into, which is indeed costly. 
but it's not nearly as costly as the destructive way of pursuing being like everyone else. Jesus invites us into a different way of life. It's a way that looks different. Israel was God's nation that was set apart. We today as the church are God's people who are set apart. We as the church are called to look different. We as the church are called to be light and salt in this world. Where everyone is pursuing being like everyone else. Where everyone is in the rat race, pursuing everything else. Jesus invites us into a way of life that looks different. Where people, out of fear, are pursuing finding security somehow in their 401k or in their job or in their home or in whoever, they, uh, whoever their person is that they want to elect as president. All this pursuit of somehow finding security in this life, Jesus invites us with, to come to him with open hands and release our fear of wanting security and saying, I'm secure in the hands of Christ. Come what may, I'm secure in God. That is the only security that will endure. I can have the next slide. Economic power won't save us. Political power won't save us. Military power won't save us. Technology won't save us. The felt security we have with these things won't save us. There is only one king who can save us. Who can save us from our fear that drives us to these things. Who can save us from ourselves. And it's Jesus. And that king we see enthroned on a cross. Jesus comes and says, what true power looks like is giving up power for the sake of the world. What true power looks like is being nailed to a cross, which brings hope and salvation for the world. And so Samuel warns the people that this is what will happen. If you ask for a king, if you get a king, this is what's going to happen. You will ultimately become slaves once again. Verse 19, but the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. They want someone who will make them feel secure, who will go out and fight battles for them and lead them in that way. They want to put their trust and their hope and their security and their future in the hands of a human king. Uh, let me ask you this morning, who, who is your king? Who is your king? Where is your trust? Where is your hope? Where is your security found? 
Is it found in your job? Is it found in your home? Is it found in your retirement account? Uh, who is your king? Maybe it's not a thing. Maybe it's not an account. Maybe it's not an occupation. Uh, maybe it's a person. Maybe it's a person. Who, who is your king? Who is your king? You wanted to get married. And then you got married and you realized your spouse wasn't Jesus. Who is your king? Who's your king? Uh, your, your spouse didn't bring the fulfillment you wanted, and so, you, well, if I just have a child, if I just have a child, then I'll be fulfilled. Then I'll know what unconditional love looks like. And, and then they became teenagers. <laughs> or two. Uh, who, who is your king? Who is your king? Who... Uh, who are you trusting to bring you security, to bring you hope, to bring you fulfillment? Who is your king? Because no person, no thought system, uh, no worldview is going to bring you security apart from the one who promised it from the beginning of time, apart from the one who crafted you in your mother's womb, apart from the one who created you to live the way of Jesus, which is ultimately this way. If I can have the next slide. Uh, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Jesus invites us to give our lives away for his sake, and the sake of the world. Not to gain things, not to accumulate more and more and more, which is where we so often believe we'll find security. But to give ourselves away for the sake of Christ and the sake of the world. Who is your king? This morning, just like every day, Jesus invites us to once again say, you are my king. You alone are my king. And my only hope, my only security is found in you alone. In, in a season of life where... Uh, I think we can pretty safely say we've seen one of the strangest lead-ups lead to uh, a presidential election <clears throat> that we've ever seen. Uh, whoever your candidate is, uh, if your candidate didn't make it through the primaries, uh, who is your king? Where is your hope? Where is your security? Uh, are you living with fear of if that person becomes president? 
Or are you trusting in something so much bigger and so much better and so much more secure? A hope of the kingdom of God and Jesus' reign in our lives. Don't buy in to the fear. Don't buy into the fear. There is only one place to find true hope. And when we hear all the political rhetoric going on, I think for me, and I would invite you to explore if this is helpful for you, I think for me, reading through the Sermon on the Mount on a regular basis and saying, God, what are you inviting me to look like in the midst of this world? And this morning, I want to read the Beatitudes and just a couple other sections of the Sermon on the Mount for us to reflect on. Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You have heard it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I tell you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. If there is any teaching of Jesus that is difficult, it's this one. What does it look like in a world of fear-mongering and hate-filled rhetoric to love your enemy? To love the person that's different than you, to love the person who evokes fear in you, in the name of Jesus, to love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. 
He causes his sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. What does it look like to live as God's people the way of love in a world of indifference? What does it look like to choose the way of forgiveness in a world that so often chooses the way of resentment? What resentment lies within you that Jesus is inviting you to release and choose the way of forgiveness? In a world of cynicism, what does it look like to choose the way of hope? What does it look like to be a people of hope? In a world that will so quickly lash out and wound others, what does it look like to choose the way of healing. Who is your king? Jesus invites us into a particular way of life. It's the way of love. It's the way of hope. It's the way of grace. It's the way of forgiveness. It's the way of giving away your life for the sake of Christ and the world. This morning, as we come and take this bread and dip it in this cup, we're invited to remember. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. We're invited to remember that our king is enthroned on a cross, dying for the sake of the world. Not propping himself up, not talking about why he's the greatest, not talking about why you should choose him, but instead giving himself away for the sake of the world. That's what our king looks like. And we celebrate the crucified Christ, but we also celebrate the risen Christ because death could not hold him down. And the reason we're invited into the abundant life of Jesus, this way of love, grace, forgiveness, hope, healing, is because Jesus died and because Jesus lives. God, thank you that you are our King. Thank you that you are the hope of the world. God, fill us to overflowing with the power of your Spirit to live the way of Jesus, to live the way of love, the way of grace, the way of forgiveness, the way of hope, the way of healing. God, may the risen Christ shine through us by the power of your Spirit, and may we be light and life in the darkness. We thank you for the death of Christ. We thank you for the resurrection of Christ. 
We thank you for the life of Christ that flows through us. This morning, as we partake of the bread and the cup, remind us of who you are. Change our hearts. Transform our minds more and more into your image. And empower us to live as you created us to live. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.